Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. We're back, bitches. That's right. Kicking the karaoke, the intersectional feminist podcast is back for season two. You may have heard that we don't play it safe, as was uh, mentioned in the Guardian article. Ahem, back Ahem. in January. Little cheeky hair flick there. And we are covering more topics, more people, and more everything badass and woke. <laughs> I don't know if we could say work though. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> Someone will tell us. Which is a good point, actually. You can call us in if you'd like to. You can get in touch. We're all up for that, whether that be through Twitter or through Facebook or any other form of communication, including email. You can do that too. Exactly. Because it's important to remember, if you're a first-time listener or a long-time listener, that we're learning just as much as you guys. We are on this journey as well, which sounds really wanky that I've just been like, oh, we're all on a journey. But, you know, we're learning. And so if there is something that we do that could be phrased better or, you know, topics that we could be covering or topics that we should have covered in a slightly different way or a different perspective, please let us know because Mm. that's the only way that we're going to get better at this and the only way that I guess society as a whole is going to better from all of this. Yeah. And I like the idea that, like, our activism is ever-evolving, that we're continually growing to become better people. I like that. I don't know if we can use the word woke, but I like the idea that that's a constant goal. Yeah. So let's tell us a little about how we work if you are a first-time listener. We have three guests every month and we cover one big topic and what's really important is that we do everything on our guest terms we fully acknowledge all our privileges as white women so the way that we do this is that we interview them they get to see all the questions they get to listen to the editing so everything you see and hear has been fully approved by the guests it's on their terms not on ours so you can rest assured that every narrative that you're hearing in this episode is not a manipulated construction that we've done to suit our agenda this is something that everybody on this podcast has listened to and given their consent to and willingly shared their story and i'm really proud of that yes me too and actually raises a really good question how many other media outlets do that when you're reading things and you're trying to be critical think about that what is the agenda of the person writing this and how many clicks are they trying to get yeah so kicking the karaoke one question that we are guaranteed always asked. How do you pronounce kiriaki? Yes, that's true. That is something that we always ask. I mean, I always, always get asked that. I always get asked that. <laughs> to be honest, I don't even know if we're saying it properly. No. But the meaning is there, kiriaki. Uh, do you want to quickly actually give a bit of a rundown of what kiriaki is? Because we tackled it in the first episode, Privilege, which yeah. you should absolutely go back and listen to. But sometimes our podcast doesn't really work as a series. You can listen to each individual episode on its own. So if we give, were to give you a basic introduction to kiriaki, basically patriarchy, 
kairiaki is the um, oppression of women by men. So basically, kairiaki is a more intersectional way of looking at it that way because we are not oppressed only on the, the spectrum of gender, but also in terms of race, in terms of disability. And so that's the way of looking at it. The idea that we are all in a really complicated field of relationships that are constantly pulling and oppressing each other, which means that lots of people have lots of privileges and lots of people are oppressed too. So if I haven't lost you, <laughs> everything is a lot more diverse and exciting and complicated than you thought it was. So we're not just smashing the patriarchy. We are kicking the kairiarchy. Exactly. So yes, we are always asked that. But I was more thinking, <laughs> we're always asked, aren't you going to run out of topics one day? Mm. And the answer is no. no. Because the world is pretty fucked up thanks to people like Trump and L'Oreal. Hashtag we stand with Monroe. Monroe Bergdorf is a fantastic trans woman of colour who was recruited by the makeup brand because of their diversity campaign and then subsequently dropped when comments that she had posted about Charlottesville had gone viral. And she was just basically telling the truth. In inverted commas, what those inflammatory comments were were that she said all white people are racist and that all white people benefit from white supremacy and she's done a lot of work the past few weeks explaining that and I guess I mean I don't want to explain for her you know there's lots of great resources and great videos out there that you should be watching her videos and supporting her work but basically the gist of it is that you might not be individually racist you might not walk around discriminating against a certain person because they are black or they're East Asian or Southeast Asian but the fact that you're white means that you're benefiting from a systemic racism you're benefiting from the fact that people will automatically have a preference for you. And it's not just about racism because it's it's also about power. Who is more likely to be backed up by the state if you, for example, were to get into the fight of the street? There's this whole structure behind it which means that it's not just about name-calling. It's so much more than that. So it's a fucking massive topic. And at times when, when doing this podcast and doing this episode, it can feel a little overwhelming. And to be honest, we kind of have the nice side of it in the sense that we're white. So we can choose when to dip in and out of race conversations. Absolutely right. And this is why you should listen to this episode. You should listen to it, take everything that's said into account, and you'll learn a lot from it because we certainly did. So, race. Yeah. <laughs> I guess we better hand it over to our three fantastic guests and they will tell you more. Boom. Thanks for having me. My name is Sianna Bangura and I am a writer, a poet, a performer, um, a community activist and a, I suppose all-round busybody agitator, shaking things up. That's what I do. Amazing. Thank you so much. <laughs> Could you maybe start us off by telling us what race means to you? Is oh that Oh my god. Let's go for it. But I mean, it's messy. That's for starters. So I think what does it mean to me? You know what? It's weird because I think ultimately at this point it's almost a meaningless concept that has real life meaningful ramifications for the people who are most kind of visibly affected by, it, I'd say. So obviously, I think the idea of race has changed a lot. Um I think it hasn't changed as well. I think that as well, there's an academic understanding of it and then there's a kind of real life, everyday understanding of what it is. I think there's an activist understanding of what it is as well. But, you know, obviously for me, I'm racialized as black. Um, and again, we could talk about other things like political blackness. But because I'm racialized as black, that has real life consequences for me. And um, I would say one thing is really important that... I can't speak about race in isolation. It's not an isolated thing. That's for starters. So race is very much a part 
of a bigger conversation, right? And that's what intersectionality is. So uh, as a black feminist um, and, and kind of in terms of how I kind of understand the world, it's through an intersectional lens, meaning that I'm not just black. I'm a black woman. I'm not just actually a black woman. I'm a black woman who is working class and has a migrant history, but also a very privileged educational background as well. And then, you know, we could talk about things to do with kind of colorism and and all those kinds of things as well so i think yeah race is a really big part of my experience but it's heavily intertwined with all of the other facets of my identity right exactly (laughs) messy yeah it's interesting that you identify as a feminist because traditionally white (laughs) feminism vanilla feminism i call it right exactly has excluded women of colour. Absolutely. So are you able to kind of talk about your feminism and why you identify as a feminist? Yeah, that's funny because I think straight away there's another kind of word that would definitely suitably encapsulate my um, politics, which is womanism. But I think for me, I find womanism to be very... It feels very specifically African-American. You know, I, I don't really just call myself a feminist. I do more often than not say I'm a black feminist. I think it's quite important for me to to preface it just because for you know very good reasons, the word feminist still disillusions people it's still kind of particularly women of color there is a default idea of what feminism is and the face of feminism would be more yours than mine shall we say right um but i identify as a feminist i think i identified with it long before i really used the word and i always say this when i was growing up i did not have the language at all i didn't know necessarily or understand what feminism was but i saw feminism in action all the time in my household i don't think my mum would call herself a feminist but i'd say my mum's a feminist and i think i would say i come from quite a feminist background a lot of women in particular from kind of african west african households can say that um And again, there's a lot of contradiction there too because we could have a big conversation about also those same women internalising patriarchy and things like that. But I saw feminism in action and it didn't have to be called that. So I think it's really when I went to university that I started to identify with this term. But weirdly enough, it was really where I started to feel excluded. So we had a university feminist society, but I found it really racist in all honesty. And really it was things like we had a Facebook group and anytime you posted something about race, it was always like tumbleweed. But then as soon as someone posted something about sex, it was like a thousand comment thread situation. And it just got very frustrating. I felt very excluded. Um, Really understanding the idea of intersectionality came from really feeling excluded from what was going on. I did a, a gender paper at university and it was all white, of course, but it was still a stepping stone for me to make a conscious decision to go and find voices like mine. So I then encountered, of course, our African-American feminist heroes like Audre Lorde and Bell Hooks and Patricia Hill Collins and Alice Walker. And I started to feel like, wow, like representation, but to a point. So then I understood, well, I'm not black in America. So there's something missing here. Clearly, you know, I need to look into our black British feminist history, right? And in all honesty, um, that was really hard to find stuff. You know, there's a lot of work, but I think that in terms of the documentation side of all of that work, it was just really hard to find it. And I think, you know, if you are looking for kind of black feminist text, then the canon would be very much... American women's voices um, and you know I didn't encounter the likes of Heidi Merzer and people like that but then I then understood that Heidi is politically black and I didn't really know what that was at the time either and one thing led to another and just led to a lot of education and founding No Fly on the Wall as well was definitely a massive point of education for me I was just a kid out of university who just felt very frustrated and invisible and I said what am I good at 
I'm good at blogging and I'm good at, you know, galvanizing the masses, shall we say. So I just reached out to some friends and was like, I want to start this blog. Let's do it. As my feminism developed, the concept of that platform developed more. So actually, I was just thinking about this on the way here. When we started, we had voices from like lots of different women, actually. But then I learned that it's probably important to have just the voices that are like mine because we don't really have a lot of like young black women in Britain talking about this stuff. So yeah, it's been a bit of a journey really, but it involved feeling excluded first and foremost. Can you tell us a bit about political blackness? So defining as as politically black, but then also what's the difference between that and being a person who's racialized as black? Yeah. Yeah. Being politically black is essentially just not being white. There's a very important uh, reason for organising under that banner, especially historically, you know, in the 80s, the 70s, the 90s, you know, like, even today, like, POCs are apparently 14% of the population, and of that 14%, roughly 3.3 or something are black, maybe 4%. And so there's so few of us, so it kind of makes sense that we should all just, like, get together, right? Makes sense. Because ultimately, you know, we experience racism, but to different degrees, I would say. The problem, I suppose, that we're having now with this idea of kind of lumping everyone together, not saying it wasn't useful back then, of course, there were always people who weren't agreeing with the notion of blackness being the only or the main umbrella to struggle under. It's a term that I still think a lot of people who aren't organising in NUS, who aren't organising in trade union spheres, I don't necessarily think it's like a concept that a lot of people in general would understand. In my personal opinion, organising under things like political blackness, I just think that it doesn't necessarily give us room for honest conversations as people of colour about anti-blackness which is something you find in POC communities and you find it in black communities as well we don't get room to interrogate that when we are all kind of bundled together and I also just have another problem with um, the idea of blackness just always being affiliated with struggle maybe it's a smaller point but the way we use language is, is very important and interesting to me because I'm a writer and a poet and I think already in common parlance anything to do with blackness is negative to be in, in the black for example or to be blacklisted or to be a black sheep. There's small ways that end up conditioning you to see black as wrong and white as right. Mm. Mm. POCs for people of colour. People of colour, yeah. What's the difference between using black and people of colour? <laughs> There's an argument that we spend too much time thinking about that and not enough time acting. Um, but I think, you know, it does matter. So people of colour... I mean, it irritates me to an extent. I'm not a colouring book, but, you know, it's inclusive enough and it includes brown folk. It includes people who are non-white and I prefer it to being called non-white because the other thing is we have to move away from centering whiteness. We have to move away from whiteness being the barometer that everything else is measured by. And I think when we mean black, we should say black. Why are we saying people of colour when we specifically mean an experience that is very specific to people who are racialized as black? Yeah. You touched on the difference between um, the black American experience Mm. and the black British experience. Mm. And I I feel like you can't ignore events like Charlottesville. That's just happened. You know, police brutality in the US. I think people look at the US and are like, oh, racism is a massive problem in the US, but it isn't in the UK. Absolutely. What's your take? And I know that you've done that documentary, haven't you? Yeah, we're working on it still, but I can tell you, yeah. I can talk more on that. So this is an interesting one too. So again, the experiences aren't the same, but there are similarities. And I think what British people are really good at doing is deflecting. Yeah, I think we are really good as a culture of just being like, other people are worse than us. One thing I always say is nobody in their right mind can say that the United States of America is not a racist country. I 
you know what? It would be a really hard thing to argue, even if they've had a black president. It's pretty tough to say they're not a racist country. Here, however, you can have a lot of convincing arguments. Even, you know, like white people can really talk to people of colour and almost try to convince them that it's in their head and that they're crazy and that, no, that is not racist. I'll tell you what racism is. Even though you don't know what racism is, really, um, you have not experienced that because you are the one in the position to be racist so I find it really interesting here like it's all quite you know microaggressions and you know very insidious and institutionalized and of course I'm not saying it's not like that in the USA here like there are plenty of people who are still romanticizing you know the empire there was this Guardian article that came out about a survey a few years ago not even that long ago and it was like 40 something percent of people were like the British empire was one of the best things ever and it's like like very few of those were probably people of color you know (laughs) probably very few of them thought that was good because of the education system and our histories and things like that you know like there's a very superficial touching on the atrocities and this is the other thing too when people are like oh black people and brown people need to get over it it's like this is the problem yes you didn't do it today and maybe not even your direct ancestors but you're benefiting from something that has happened right the empire slavery all those things are like the worst things to have happened to humankind the reason being that we're still living with the direct effects of those now this is why like the black community for example doesn't really have generational wealth we you know are still working those things out because we're dealing with direct consequences of experiencing those things people then do false equivalences you just don't know your history i think it's a very specific thing that's being done where we just don't know our histories and so a lot of people don't quite understand the extent of of what happened um and you know history has living consequences all of this is still living history as far as i'm concerned so whilst you know certain demographics are more likely to live in poorer areas and have the worst schools and have like the worst access to healthcare and all of these things we just have to understand that they're direct consequences of of kind of the history of this country and the UK is the fatherland of racism so like I feel like what America did was like yep dad I'm gonna do this and do it even better than you so like that's what we're witnessing now (laughs) you know they learned from somewhere was Charlottesville a surprise for you no no none of this is a surprise like it could be anywhere like Ferguson wasn't a surprise like none of this is a surprise and what makes me laugh but it's not a funny laugh it's just like a when people are like usually white people in 2017 like Mm. but we've been telling you this why are you surprised and I think it's really sad because it means you haven't been paying attention and it literally takes actual Nazis killing people and killing white people too for you to be like oh shit okay this is real and I think what's really frustrating too for the most part is you know what people of colour we don't have a choice there are days I don't want to talk about race like I just want to sit down and eat some ice cream drink a mojito but I can't because I don't have a choice in it like these things affect me but white people have a choice to just switch off and mostly they just switch off and when you talk about these things I think a lot of people are more outraged by being called racist than are outraged by racism again in, in the UK like there are so many people who think like racists are a particular type of person so it's like we're not those kind of people and actually you know what like for the most part it's really controversial to say but to an extent all white people have the potential to be racist or are racist already actually because of just the way society's conditioned even 
black and brown people internalize those things some of them have negative views about their own communities because we internalize that like white supremacy so we're all susceptible to it but you have to come to that point of acceptance for you to unlearn and we don't have that there's too much defensiveness and even people like me i know i get on people's like nerves and even people in my community they're just like why are you always talking about this stuff and it's like well you know we have to i don't want Mm -hmm. to but we have to Um, and then you've got white people who are like oh not all white people hashtag not all white people and it's like firstly if you have to say not all white people there's a problem because clearly if you're not that person i'm not talking to you however you probably know who i am talking to and what you need to do and what people need to do is really take on board this active allyship that is something that people who are in inverted commas good white people who are our friends and our colleagues and our comrades and who really mean well but ultimately like there needs to be active allyship where you're not just firstly sitting around and expecting POCs to educate you because there's a lot of privilege and entitlement in that also you're not doing anything or speaking over them and like you know there's that too but also you have to confront your peoples it's really like not my job to have to have these big conversations with like other white people really in an ideal world I should be just really concentrating on the very big job of working my own community dynamics you know we've got a lot of things going on that we need to sort out but unfortunately I have to spend a lot of time educating white people and I have really like cut a lot of that out of my life now but you do encounter it sometimes and you feel compelled to be like the voice um, but yeah like you know again you always get people saying i didn't ask to be privileged what yeah duh but you are and it's also like the great thing about privilege is you don't even notice that you have it because it's privilege so it's like when you do that amazing work of like understanding that you have that guilt is useless i don't want your guilt i need you to do shit so that means like if you have money or access to space or like networks and stuff use that stuff and make sure that people of color and other people organizing that space have access to those things like if you're able to donate then keep places like common house open for example if you're able to organize space for you know black feminist groups to get together then like do that and just help to redistribute the resources is what i'm saying but most importantly confront other white people don't let casual racism just be ignored don't just sit there and be like at the end when the person's gone oh wasn't that terrible i think that's so british as well just don't be hypocrite like i think we need more white allies with a spine basically who are like going to actually speak up not speak over but speak up and i think a lot of white people find it hard to confront other white people um and this is what we like that's the next step it has to happen otherwise we're going to be stuck where we are it's fucking amazing. <laughs> Everything, Everything I was like, let's you. ask what a good ally looks like. And then you went there. I and went like, there. Yeah. It's brilliant. <laughs> I don't know what to ask. Have you ever have you ever internalized racism? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Firstly, let's just get this clear. So the word racism, right? Okay, so I obviously you had to learn this. So obviously people just think racism is oh, I don't like you, racist, the end. Okay, people of colour can't be racist because racism involves structural power. So again, there'll be people, I don't know if they're listening, maybe the people listening to this will like get this, but there might be a few who trickle on and think, oh, what is kicking the kiriaki? I'll listen (laughs) and be like, oh my God, no, I've experienced racism from black people before. No, you've experienced prejudice because... It's very unlikely for a black person in this country and really in the West, to be honest, to be able to make sure that you don't have a home um, and that you don't have a job, you don't have food um, and that you will be arrested or whatever just because of your skin colour. We don't have that power. So what it is, is everybody can be prejudiced. So have I been prejudiced? Oh, yeah. But racism is a specific phenomenon. Okay, that is white people being racist. So got to put that out there. But anyway, 
so yes i've internalized anti-blackness i really did i used to be really ashamed of kind of saying this but it's part of my journey and i think it's also very important to say it to be like even me i can reach the point where I understand and understand all of this shit can be undone. Growing up, I didn't really like being black, to be honest. Um, but that, I didn't start off that way. But it's something that developed because I felt very rejected by the black community. Um, the black community that I was sort of a part of. And essentially, you know, being called things like a coconut, an Oreo biscuit, a Milky Way bar, any type of food. Like, just being called it because of, like, the way I spoke and the boys I dated and the music I listened to and, like, being vegetarian and an atheist and just all these things that were, in inverted commas, unblack. But obviously, we know there's no one way to be a black person. That is very clear. But I guess growing up, I was called a lot of those kind of names at school. Um, and it just made me just be really like, well, fuck you guys, man. I don't need, like, you call me white, I'll be white, even though clearly I'm not white. So I really, um, yeah, I really, really struggled with that stuff. And I didn't really talk about it that much, even to like my closest friends, because I didn't really have the language. I just knew that black people that I knew got on my nerves in all honesty and I think I just felt really judged as well and I think I just felt really misplaced um when did I there was definitely like a moment when I kind of stepped out of that and that was going to university so it happened pretty late in my life but I went to Cambridge University and I have always said this if I didn't go there then I wouldn't have had to confront my blackness and I wouldn't have then started No Fly on the Wall and I wouldn't be sitting here today with you guys. So having gone through most of my life being told I'm not black enough, right, I was then put in a position where I was the representative of all black people. And I was like, this is shit. Like, I'm not even a good representation, apparently. How am I going to, like, represent the entire bloody race? For a long time, you know, in my first year, for the most part, there was I was basically the only kind of... um black girl on, on campus shall we say and it was just really weird and for the most part as well you know at, at that particular university the stats are pretty low for people of color anyway particularly black folk and i actually again was really that person who was like i'm not joining the acs the african caribbean society because why do we need to be friends just because we're all black so i really shot myself in the foot from what i could have had in terms of like a community but i did in my final year finally realize <laughs> I need my people. <laughs> so I then, you know, actively kind of made an effort with the um, ACS and I was one of the founding members of an organisation called Fly, which was started by three girls who also thought that like the women's society was just not very representative at all. So all of that was really important to me. And that was like a really key milestone. It was a process and that entire process happened through the duration of my university experience. So I went from being not black enough to being like the black girl. And it was weird because, I mean, prior to that, even though I had my struggles with my community, I was known for lots of other things. At least I had the pleasure of, like, having other facets to my identity. But I felt at university I was very much essentialised and really just, like, the black girl. You went from being, I guess, not... In inverted commas, not black enough. Yeah, and, like, also not, not visibly black person yeah. to them being... Hyper-visible. Hyper-visible. Yeah. But do you think, in general... Do you think black women are invisible in yeah. society? Mm-hmm. I'll um, really break this down too because there's nuance to this. So I think black women um, are in an interesting position in society where we are hyper-visible simultaneously as being invisible. We're hyper-visible as a group, as a group that is essentialized, stereotyped, and as bl- you know, black women are angry and hypersexual and ugly or baby mamas or all of that stupid stuff but then we're also invisible as individuals with nuance yeah so I always say that so for me again I was hyper visible as the black girl but I was invisible as Sienna Bangura right so 
that is that's I think that's like an experience that we all have, especially when we're existing in such white circles. And then I would say in terms of nuancing, I think it's really important here to talk about colorism. So just to explain that, that is the kind of essentially hierarchy of of people, but usually of women, depending on your actual tone of skin. One thing, again, white supremacy is excellent at is that it doesn't need white people to propagate it. A lot of people of color do that work. So, you know, again, like the lighter you are, the more, in inverted commas, European features you have, good hair, in inverted commas, that kind of stuff, you know, the less invisible you are. Even though there's so few kind of meaningful representations of us, you know, in the media, if you do see us, it's usually a specific type of black woman. So she will be kind of your Beyonce's, your Nicki Minaj's, your Rihanna's, and I love them. But you know what I mean? They kind of tick certain boxes. Increasingly, we are seeing more of the Lupita Nyongos and people like that. But again, a lot of it feels still very tokenistic, you know? So yeah, black women kind of exist as hyper visible as a group, and everybody thinks they know us, but we are invisible as like individuals individuals um with like individual dreams individual experiences and individual tastes and all of that kind of stuff it's really interesting on twitter i've seen more people use gifs of black women um mm-hmm. showing expressions than <laughs> actually platforming the voices of black women yeah with retweets absolutely like that. that's so interesting you talk about that because i shared recently i wish i'd written this article it was excellent um but it was this article it was about the digital blackface thing so again and you know what even i hadn't really thought of that like really i'm always learning and i was like you know what that is so interesting and this writer really wasn't talking about black people using these but i was like even me as a black person i'm going to really think about my use because you have people who probably have no black friends but they're forever jiffing black people like Wendy Williams and they don't even know who she is. How are you using Wendy's tea but you don't know who she is? Just paraphrasing the article, one section I thought was powerful was them saying, well, you know, black people are your your joy, your sass, your pain, your indifference, your whatever, whatever, but you just still are not like writing for black people. People out there, like go and read this article. I think it was in Teen Vogue, which is doing the most. Um, Teen Vogue about digital blackface and how yeah black people you know what we're hyper visible being performers caricatures and just being that kind of thing for everybody to use and less visible as like people but we're also hyper visible in our pain like people are very used to seeing videos go viral of us being shot by the police right um and being beaten up and having our wigs ripped off or something like that i think people are quite numb really to to that point of almost seeing black people as just human so Rachel Dolezal. Oh my God, must we? Go on then. <laughs> Go on then. I mean, can someone be no. trans- transracial? Okay, yes, you can be transracial because it's a real thing. It's a very specific experience of like kids from one race being adopted by another race. So everyone can go google that and look it up i'm definitely not the person to educate you on that so transracial is a thing in a very specific context and that context is usually like adoption yeah out of that specific context no so long as i can't wake up one day friends and say you know what i feel white today and i'm a white man uh, and i'm gonna use that white man privilege or i'm a a white woman i can't do that shit so there we go end of story i'm gonna always be black so you're gonna always be white i'm afraid (laughs) There we go. I just feel like there's not really much else to say. What people should go and do is, you know what, Ijoma Oluo did the good work for us, the work of the good lord, and she went and like interviewed Rachel, who is trash, and did the, the last ever interview with her, and it was excellent. And anything you need to know about that woman is in that interview. So go and read Ijoma Oluo's interview with her, and then go and read her work that has nothing to do with fake black women. What I would say as well, though, the very fact that someone feels they can do that is interesting because nobody feels like they can be like politically brown or feels like they can 
just kind of feel white or whatever. Like even mixed race people who are half white, for the most part, they're still often going to be racialized as black. Yeah. But what's interesting is that so many people can feel like an affiliation with black culture. And so many people love black culture, but don't love black people. Right. Love the music, love the style, love the this, love the that, love the idea of black men having big penises and stuff like that. Right. But do not then speak up when black men are being killed by the police they don't stand up like when it's time to talk about black lives matter instead they're out there with hashtag all lives matter so i just think it's interesting that you know a lot of people can feel like they can really chip in and and insert themselves in in inverted commas kind of uh, the notions of black that they want i have to really develop this concept a bit more or whatever but i was really thinking about how blackness it really doesn't mean anything though because it's not attached to a location and that is the idea of displacement we are black so that's not necessarily being Sierra Leonean. It's not being Nigerian. It's not being Jamaican. It's not being anything. It's just this idea. It's actually a colour. Whereas it's harder for people to say, oh, I feel Indian or I feel Nigerian or I feel this because those things are really specific to a geographical location, which then means it's rooted in a specific culture and experience. And so I just think that's something too. This idea of like, I talk about it a lot, this hybrid substitute identity of blackness, of black Britishness, it means it's always something that can be taken away at any point. So if you are a good immigrant, all of a sudden you can be, you know, ah, oh, Sienna from Southeast London. But if I did some shit, I'd be Sienna Bangura, originally of Sierra Leone. Mm-hmm. So it's just interesting that these identities can be taken off, given, borrowed at a whim. You've already told us what active allyship looks like. Yeah. So I was wondering if you had any comments about white defensiveness and what we can do around it's a good question and again i'm giving all these articles to read because i've found them interesting too there was an article i read can't remember the writer's name but it was basically in summary about how do you accept that you have white privilege when you've grown up poor like really poor and for me i found it so profound because i was like wow you know what and i'm talking from someone i didn't grow up poor like that at all this is a white person who grew up poor and they were like how can i be expected to even consider that i was given some kind of white privilege but the essay was really fantastic because it started off with all of that and then obviously coming to this realisation at the end that, you know, it's complicated, essentially. So I'd say if people can just, like, do their Googles and find out that essay, that was profound. But defensiveness. So, you know what? I have privileges too, guys, you know? And I think there are times where, you know, and I'm really thinking about that too. Like, I'm able-bodied, for example. I'm cishet. Uh, so much privilege in that right and all these types of things and then you know obviously like the way I speak and you know even being from London to an extent and all those kind of things it can be hard when you don't have privilege in other ways to then see your privilege and it can be really upsetting because without necessarily wanting to be you are complicit in other people's oppression and that is a very profound realization and it hurts especially if you like you love black people you love brown people you have them in your life um i'm not doing hashtag black friends but just as in like it's not even a thing why would you not have them in your life for you to then understand that actually there are elements of my own existence that are oppressing these people it's tough but i'd say like however shit you feel man can you just for a moment be like well okay i feel bad because this is my realization what is it like to be living that i think that's the question you have to ask yourself um i think it's something we should all do we can all do better at like really actively um understanding and and doing the work of empathy so not sympathy empathy there's a difference the idea of like really trying to remove yourself Um, from your own kind of position and try and put yourself into other people's shoes and it's so like cliche but that's the first thing like it's about perspective and I just think like 
the sooner people do that, the better. I think the sooner that people stop being upset about being called racist and then like making people who call them racist, like be the instigator, the bad guy, because you end up being the bad guy all the time. Just rechannel that energy um, and all the guilt and the white tears, like stop with that and actually start like really being practical about stuff. I just think that things will be better. So if you're feeling defensive, boohoo, man, like get out of it, snap out of it. If you really are about that life, then start being about it. Because you know what? Again, another article I read, which was really great. It was actually in context of Adele and Beyonce and the Grammys, right? And, mate, I love Adele. I don't care what anyone says. I love Adele, and I think she's absolutely sincere, yeah? So I didn't read it the way other people read it. But what I would say is for a split second, I thought she was going to give that Grammy away. I really did. When she said, I can't accept this. And I was gonna be like, Adele's going to... No. And she didn't. And it was like, okay, but then again, I guess, why should you? Why should you? Because that's sacrifice. And it's about... That's a really small example of what it looks like, yeah? So... The other thing is too, I'm just going to say, I don't really think Beyonce would have wanted her to just give her the Grammy. That's another convo. But this idea of sacrifice, all of this stuff takes sacrifice. It takes self-sacrifice. Yeah, sometimes it means that you have to say no to stuff you really want because ultimately, if you start doing that work, then maybe we start to break down these systems of privilege. It really takes removing yourself from being the centre of your universe because a lot of white people for the most part like you haven't been taught to not be the center of everything because if we're using language like non-white and if we're using things that emphasize that whiteness is the barometer of humanity whiteness is the default and anything else that deviates from that is other with a capital o if we've been taught that then how can you even begin to to look at the world differently I'm very conscious of the fact that, you know, that we've taken a lot of intellectual and emotional labour from you. <laughs> you're, you're, you're a black woman, but you're mm. also a creative. And yes. we've had you on to talk about race and there's so much more about you. Oh, yeah, absolutely. So how can we support you? How can we find you? And how can our listeners find you and support your work outside of being a black woman as well, you know? Yeah, yeah well, I mean, you know, ultimately everything I do is as a black woman, so I wouldn't want to divorce that. But I just don't think... I think the key thing is that it doesn't need to be said because that's what I am so that's always there and I think you make a really good point about how example being this year I've been really pissed off reason why is obviously Black History Month's coming up right now I'm a working artist the other 11 months of the year too and actually to be fair you know March is Women's Month so I get that too so March and October um, are like my busy months in the year but even this year especially it's been extraordinary how I haven't heard from people really and all of us you know March came and I was inundated and now October's coming and my inbox is blowing up but I'm kind of like where are you guys the other 10 months of the year it really pisses me off because it's so tokenistic right support people in a really meaningful way okay like you know so the stuff I'm doing I'm working on a film about police brutality that's coming like when that's out towards the end of this year or the top of next year support that film 1500 and counting come to our screenings and stuff like that okay Um, by the time this goes out the fundraiser would have ended I think but you know I organised in a space called Common House and we are seriously under threat of closing because of gentrification so again like become a friend of Common House like go on um, the Common House website and, and join us and help other activists from across the the, the kind of board in terms of walks of life and demographic and stuff. We're organising to make sure that um, marginalised voices have spaces to organise in, okay? Buy my book Elephant, you know? It's out there. Go buy it. I hear it's a good book. Go and watch Denim as well, my film. It's on YouTube. Go on com and enter my universe and you'll see all the cool things I'm up to. 
Thank you so, so fucking much <laughs> for coming on to this podcast. Like, honestly, we appreciate Thank it you. so much. It's cool. I appreciate it. And, but I only just like remembered this. Um, I'm one of the artists involved in the Black Blossoms tour. So my friend B Tajuddin is awesome. And um, she's founded like this arts and education platform called Black Blossoms. And they're on tour now. And we've got so many great black British female creators. Um, and Denim's going to be showing in Liverpool and like other places in the UK. So come out there, go and support. That was Sienna, and she gave us a lot to think about in terms of resources we should be using and reading and what a good active ally looks like. You follow her and support her work all year round, not just every March and October. Next up is Ming, talking about the British Chinese experience. I am Ming, full name is Wei Ming Kam, but uh, most people know me as Ming, and I am cis and bi and uh, British Chinese. Thank you so much, Ming, for coming on. Thank you for inviting me. The podcast. Very excited. We both said now have read The Good Immigrant mm-hmm. and we we love we I mean we love the whole book, but we particularly liked your Thank contribution you. to it. So we're very excited to have you on this month. So jumping in at the deep end, just gonna get straight into it. Okay. Ming, <laughs> when did you realise you were Asian? <laughs> <laughs> the the term Asian is actually uh it's very it's very broad and it differs. So in the US, when you say Asian, they generally mean Asian American. And for a lot of the USA, Asian American means in their head like East Asian, so people from China, Korea, Japan. But even for the USA, like it's not supposed to be like it, it didn't like originate as like a broad umbrella under which like ethnic groups are supposed to be underneath. It was more of a, a political coalition. So Asian America is, is very broad and actually like it's, you know, it's, it's, I, I kind of find, think it's ridiculous because actually it's supposed to like encompass East Asians, South Asia, Asians, Southeast Asian people. And to a certain extent, I think it also sometimes includes uh, Pacific Islanders as well. So it's incredibly broad and it's definitely supposed to be more of a political coalition thing than it is supposed to be a group under which like ethnic groupings are supposed to be. So that's just for the US. And then over here, it's more like referencing South Asian people. So Indians, Pakistanis, Bengalis, etc, etc. And I guess that's, in, in my, I think in my head, that's definitely more a case of like government sort of imposed a term, as it were. Um, because if you look at um, anything to do with like the census or, if, you know, like uh, workplace diversity, you'll always see quite a, a broad range underneath Asians. So it would be like Asian slash Pakistani, Asian slash Indian, etc. And then everyone else is like tick other. So it's either like Asian or Chinese and then everyone else is other, essentially. And that's partly to do with like the history and the demographics of Britain than it is the US. So that's really broad, but that's basically like the differences between like um, the US and, and North America in general, actually, and Britain. So when you talk about when when we talk about, oh, when did you realise you were Asian? That's partly influenced, I think, by like American culture. I also know exactly what people mean when they say, when did you realise you were Asian? Because what they're actually saying is, when did you like first realise that you're Chinese? Which is to say, pretty early on. I mean, like, there are always these, like, the idea of like being like a certain way or when people think that you are Chinese or, or like Korean or Japanese, there's definitely expectations and stereotypes that um, you are aware of from very early on. 
in Britain. When I was talking to Katie in The Good Immigrant about that, you know, both of us were very aware um, from a young age that people have these certain expectations of us because, you know, I am Chinese and I look Chinese and she was half Vietnamese and she kind of looked vaguely Asian-ish. You know, the expectation is that we are extremely smart, probably in maths and science and that we would always work hard and that we would always like be top of the class and we were good and you know subservient and quiet and blah 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 so the answer is just from a very early age those stereotypes do they still follow you today the ideas of being hardworking? oh yeah and good at science and maths and oh yeah definitely like that's definitely if you just look at like pop culture do you know what i mean and and the way that if we appear in the news, which is to say very rarely, it's nearly always to do with, like, education. Also, it's either education or, like, criminality. Rarely, it's always, like, someone is a doctor or they're a scientist or they're a businessman or they're, like, some sort of faceless villain in Iron Fist or Daredevil, mm-hmm. do you know what I mean? It, that, those expectations are very much, like, shaped by pop culture. And they, they hold strong still even today. I mean, if you, you go back to, like, Fu Manchu, for example, it's an incredibly racist stereotype, and then it had massive influ- influence on, like, things like Doctor Who. And it still follows, follows us around. This is a massive topic, and there's <laughs> so... There's literally so many different angles yep. and, and questions and things that we can go for. And the reason why we're particularly interested in it is I don't think that this podcast has ever really done justice to... Uh, when you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. An East Asian and Southeast Asian narrative. Um, and that's partly because, like, I was never really educated on it and then when I was you know learning about experiences of people of colour I feel like it, I, I was always like taught about it from a black perspective and then like so and then I, I moved into a new place and my housemate Amanda she's Chinese and so and we were like t- chatting about it and it's like where where are these narratives like why do these narratives for like East Asian and Southeast Asian perspectives don't exist or why are they really difficult to find 
I mean, again, it's partly like the the very different like demographic and historical perspective that Britain has from, say, the US and, and Canada, for example. So they have a much bigger Asian-American population. Please bear in mind, again, that it's a very broad term. Whereas over here, you know, a lot of the pop culture and history that we get taught in school and then actually appears in, in culture itself is the black British experience or the British South Asian experience which is not something that like I object to at all that's that's literally just like the way that things have happened and we have a much smaller proportion of British Chinese people in the US um, compared to the overall population than for example like there are Asian Americans compared to the overall population in America so there's I think it's partly um, I do think it is like partly like a demographic thing but then you know there's also there's also just like racism and the fact that historical narratives have always been like erased because partly because of that that continues on into um the way that uh, people perceive uh, east asians in british culture today can you tell us a bit about the model minority narrative so this is an idea again like a lot of a lot of racial like historical and sociological uh, perspectives has been shaped very much by Asian American research but basically it just means that there is it's not a label that a community calls itself it's definitely always something that is given to a particular usually racial group by the government and society essentially and what it means is that these are the types of people that you want to come to the country because they always quotation marks they work hard they make sure that their children go through education they are mobile like they are mobile in terms of like class um they're aspirational you know they work in like really good jobs they are the types of like immigrants you think um a country would want to have so in america a lot of the time that's Asian Americans are like that modern minority, and when they mean Asian Americans, they always mean um, Chinese, East, uh, Korean, Japanese, usually middle class when they come over to America anyway, um, which makes it obviously easier for them to to move upwards. Um, and over here, I kind of feel like um, that's a similar narrative for the British Chinese in particular, and that's I, I really feel like that that's a harmful stereotype in in many ways because. When you say model minority, what do you, who who and what do you mean by that? Who's a model minority? Why are you calling them model minority? Why are you saying that these people are the ones that you want to come into the country? And I kind of feel that actually it's a code for being on perpetual probation because, you know, they could take that away from you at any time for whatever reason. I definitely feel like... I talked to some people from the British Chinese Project uh, and they're basically an organisation which is working to... Uh, make the British Chinese more politically engaged because we we have a very low like uh, political engagement rates. Like, well, I think something like thirty percent of us just aren't even registered on the electoral roll. And they were very clear in in saying that they definitely felt it was something that a society imposes on a particular group. So I feel like it's harmful because it's used as it's used as kind of like a political weapon against other like racial groups. So when you say something, someone is a model minority, you're saying that everyone else is not a model minority and that they should aim to be like this group. Otherwise, they're not the type of immigrants that you want. And 
model minority, when you say that, you usually mean it, or the government or society usually means black people or, you know, as of at the moment, anyone who vaguely looks Muslim is not a model minority. So I really feel like that's that is the main, like most harmful use of the model minority stereotype is using that against other communities. It's a divide and conquer tactic, essentially. But it, it is also harmful for those who you're calling the model minority themselves, because you assume that they are all exactly the same. They behave in exactly the same way. They all have the same kind of like aspirational views that they all basically are an entire monolith which is not true as i went through in my essay like yes there's like like a high level of overall um economic prosperity but then when you actually look at it we also have like for the british chinese anyway you also have higher levels of poverty we are not all the same like our concerns and our issues are not all the same and if you treat us all like we are absolutely fine and we're the model minority then it means you're not dealing with any issues that need to be dealt with, like high levels of poverty, like the fact that a lot of families are isolated and towns may suffer from racism that the police ignores, for example. So it's harmful for a lot of reasons, and basically it's because it's a divide-and-conquer tactic. What was interesting, you mentioned about how like British Chinese people are very like politically disengaged. Why is that? Is it? Uh, so there's, there's a number of reasons, really with every sort of wave of uh, immigration from like Hong Kong to then uh, Chinese people from British colonies like Malaysia, which is where my family are from, people have always, uh, the British have always been very hostile to us basically going into any industry apart from things like laundry and, res- and, and, and food and so on. And so obviously that's, that's changed a lot, but at the same time, there's still like a fairly large proportion of like British Chinese people working in the food industry and so on. And that usually means like long hours that people can't be bothered or think they don't have time to go and like register or to vote. Then there's also the language barrier. If you talk to a lot of like elderly British Chinese people, them a lot of them are not very good with English. You know, this this sort of thing goes hand in hand with the fact that the British government has never been really very good with providing resources for immigrants of any kind to transition into British society by providing translators as well as English classes and so on. And then there's also the fact that obviously there's hardly any British Chinese or even British East Asian, if you want to broaden out, politicians. They just don't feel represented. So there's a lot of different reasons, basically. Right. um, Historically and demographically. Do you think that... that British Chinese people or British East Asian people feel protected by the government? Like, do you think that they could easily, you know, call call the police if they were to be like um, burgled and be taken seriously or something like that? I don't think. I don't think by the government. We we definitely have a kind of like a, a privilege, as it were, amongst like ethnic minority communities because we have that model minority stereotype of being we're good and we're hard working and it's fine as contrasted with for example the stereotype the stereotype of black people i think we have a certain to a certain extent a kind of privilege when dealing with authorities like the police but on the other hand it doesn't mean that police deal with us in the same way like they would white people for example like there's a lot of like indifference when any east asian or british chinese 
people report racial harassment to the police. Like the British Chinese project brought a report to Parliament about the interaction of the British Chinese community with the police. And I think something like 43% of people who had dealt with the police said that they did not feel reassured and some of them even felt like intimidated after like they reported instances of racial harassment and that can lead to something like in the most extreme example uh Miguel Hong Chen being murdered in Wigan in something like 2005 2009 I can't remember exactly what year and that was very clearly a case of racial harassment which they had previously reported to the police and the police just dismissed it completely so I, it's it's mixed. I feel like we do have a certain kind of privilege compared to other racial minorities because of the stereotypes that each community has. But on the other hand, there's also a lot of police indifference as well. Can you tell us a little bit about yellow facing, what it is? Um... Oh, this is such a broad topic. Okay. Um, I mean, I think it's it's always happened. But then what we have now is social media. So basically, I think just... Hollywood or, um, you know, cultural media, Western cultural media in general has always had a history of erasing Asian experiences from the screen, either by getting white actors to put on yellow face makeup, aka, you know, like they will do makeup with their eyes and then like, you know, put a slightly different like hue of makeup on them to make them look vaguely Asian. And then there's also whitewashing, which is basically like there was a role which is Asian but then they bring in a white person to do it and then they just never mention the fact that it's supposed to be Asian it's just a white person playing an Asian role but then there's also there's also just like different tropes um so it's either erasure or there's being there's like pop culture being really fascinated by Asian cultures and then going over and being like the white savior so they'll construct stories in which they go, look, they, this is a really cool culture. We're going to pick out the best bits of it and like make up a new story around that culture. But we're going to make sure that the hero of the story is a white person who goes over, learns all of the things about the cool culture, and then is better at the culture than the actual people who the culture comes from. When we sent you some questions, you mentioned Orientalism. Oh, yeah, no, that's... So that, again, that's a very broad topic. And basically, it is... It comes from an academic book by Edward Said. And it's about the idea that certain cultures, when, you know, Westerners or or European cultures encountered them, feel, to them, fascinating. But then, like, they, they... the way that they view it and the way that they consume it is very othering. It makes them feel like very a very sort of alien culture, you know, almost in like almost inhuman, as it were. So Orientalism is it's it's basically like the way that people view what Western society would call Eastern cultures. I'm very I'm very conscious that I think we've been um, like quite theoretical. What 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 what's something? That you know that that you've that you've experienced that you've had that first hand experience of this, if you have at all, or something that you know that you deal with, or that you have to overcome in like your in the workplace or anything like that. Especially something that maybe Elena and I would have never ever had to think about. I mean, this isn't unique to like uh, Chinese people or East Asian people at all, but like when you're in a very white dominated industry, there's not very many of you of like as, as an ethnic minority within the workplace so sometimes like you're going to get the whole 
mistaken for the other person despite looking nothing like them so this isn't unique you know i've had like friends who are black or south asian in publishing who've texted us in the group chat and been like you'll never guess what happened they mistook me for the only other like black person in the entire company but like that has happened to me like it's not as i said it's not exclusive to like chinese or asian people at all but then you know that also occurs when that i mean that also plays into the stereotype of all asians look like each other right so do you think that people just need to get better at knowing the difference between like what Chinese people look like, what Japanese people look like. I think it's just people just need to stop being racist and pay more attention. It's not about like the difference between like a Chinese or a Korean or a Japanese person. Like it's the difference between people as like individuals who just happen to like in their eyes share the ethnicity even though they may not. It's the people just need to stop being racist. And I guess you probably get asked where you're from a lot. Is that Yes, yeah. Yeah, I worked in the call centre in New Zealand for like seven months and every time I'd spell out my name, they would be like, is it Meg? And then I'd be like, no, it's this Ming. And they'd clock on that it was someone who wasn't white and was probably Chinese. And I'd get quite a lot of questions of like, where are you from? Oh, yeah, no, my wife's from there as well. And I'm just like, that's really not relevant. Can I get off the phone now? <laughs> so there was this one instance where this guy was just like, oh, my God, my, my wife's also from Malaysia. And I was like, why did I even answer that question? And he got her to come over to the phone and just be like, look, you guys can chat. And I was like, no, I, I just want to get on my job. Goodbye. No. So um, how can we be better allies to this? Yes. Something that happened in the media recently, and I mean, I don't get offered acting jobs often, but there is, <laughs> oh, a, there is that, that actor who declined a, a role in a film because it was... Actually, oh, yeah. So he, his name was uh, Ed Screen. Screen? Screen, Screen, something. Yeah. Um, so, uh, I, again, I have mixed feelings about this. So, oh, OK. No, I mean, like, kudos to him, because with the caveat that not everyone is in a, pos- a position to, like, give up money or opportunity, but in my opinion, like... Saying saying that you're an ally doesn't do much until you do something, and usually that doing something means giving up money or time or opportunity, in my opinion. And so, you know, when white actors often they're they're always just like, oh yeah, no. At the moment, a lot of them are just like, oh yeah, no, representation is important. It's really important. Like Finn Jones said that before he took on like the role of Iron Fist. Like that means nothing because you you took away a role from what could have been an Asian American actor's role. And so kudos to him, to Ed, for actually giving up an acting opportunity and and money and so on because the potential to get backlash from casting directors and producers and so on is great. But at the same time, it's basic level decency. Like, he is a white actor. He's already been, like, the, um, like, lead villain in, like, Deadpool, for example. Like, you know, he he may not be become a superstar but he'll certainly be working like regularly for the rest of his life still and yet after that so many people have just gone I really want to work with him I'm going to give him like special roles and stuff and I'm just like really? Like sure he did what like not a lot of other like white actors did but that's the bare minimum like why are we falling over ourselves to give him extra work for just doing the bare minimum? Mm. I don't understand it and it's because like standards for like white decency is so low (laughs) it's true like we just when when we when we do get that kind of unselfish i'm gonna step down and do that and actually give up an opportunity it's what everyone should be doing just what you should be doing just what you should be doing i think the other thing is that people should just shut up and listen basically there's just so little willingness 
to really be quiet and just listen to what people of colour have to say when it comes to their experiences, to what they feel could be done to, you know, overturn things like white supremacy or, or you know, like a, a or making like a business, for example, more inclusive or, you know, or decolonising an, an, an industry. There's just such an unwillingness for people to, to just be quiet and listen, basically. So what are you working on? How yes. can we find you? How can we support you? How can our listeners find and support you? The floor is yours. So I'm currently working on an essay for a book of essays about intersectional feminism, which is being edited by June Ericadori and being published by Virago, and it should be out next year. Deadline's willing. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, and uh, my essay is about the impact of the immigration system on gender discrimination or gender discrimination within the immigration system but focus on very specific things. I'm also the co-founder of BAME Publishing which is a network for people of colour who work in publishing and if anyone is working publishing and has not heard of us and they would like to come along and they're a person of colour then just go to BAME in publishing or one word dot tumblr dot com forward slash F-A-Q-S and that should answer all the questions. And we also have the instructions for what to do to join the group, which is basically there should be like uh, an email address there that they can email us with asking if they can join up. And basically they just have to send in their name and job and company. And we've also, I've also just uh, helped to co-found Pride and Publishing, which is a network for queer people in publishing. So our first meetup should be at the end of September. And basically, if they want, if people want to join up, if they're a queer person who works in publishing, they have to email Pride and Publishing UK at gmail dot com. Name, job, company. Amazing. Did yeah, thank in? you so so much for coming on. It was really lovely to hear about everything that you've been working on, and uh, Bame and Publishing and Pride and Publishing sound fucking kick ass. So that was a really interesting discussion from Ming around the nuances of being British Chinese and not just Asian. I think this is something that we could all do better on, particularly this podcast, for example, educating ourselves around East Asian and Southeast Asian narratives and culture. And a good place to start is definitely 100% reading Ming's essay in The Good Immigrant. Up next, Kim. Hi everyone, I'm Kimberly or Kim and I wrote a column for Galdem about race and love and everything else and do some work with Consented and I'm really excited to chat today. Amazing. Amazing. Thank you so much for coming on to our episode about race. We feel like it's really important, especially as two white women who strive to be intersectional feminists, that we approach this topic. So we're, we're really delighted to be platforming this kind of conversation, I guess. So I'm going to begin with a, like, a super easy question. What is race and what does it mean to you? Okay, well, race is a social construct. It's not real, but the experience of it is very real. And I remember the first time I ever found out what race was, and it was when I was on study abroad in Toronto, and we're doing an anthropology module. And the lecturer, who was just really smart and really on it, was just like, race is a social construct. It's an invention from the Enlightenment. It's not a real thing, but it's so entrenched in Western thinking that people perceive it to be real. So it doesn't matter that it's not because your life experience will dictate that it is because people think that it is real. So when you say race is a social construct, do you mean as in like this idea that there's a physical difference between Mm. white and black people? Yeah, like for example, this one guy that I met on study abroad believes that black people are like psychologically 
genetically predisposed to violence, biologically. Not me, because I was different, obviously. And it doesn't matter that there's no scientific evidence to prove that if someone believes that that's the case, then it's going to affect your life. It's almost kind of similar to the idea that black people can't swim. Yeah. There's nothing to it. It's just a product of white supremacy. Yeah. (laughs) To be blunt, really. How is race an intersectional feminist issue? I guess when I always think about intersectionality in general, I always try and think of it as what kind of ways of thinking in our society. So if Republican Joe thinks that black people are predisposed to violence and he believes that because of some historical reason and then he works for a FTSE 100 how does that way of thinking plus the power that he has over other people's lives so who gets employed who doesn't who gets a promotion and who doesn't who does that exclude and who does it benefit and who has power and who doesn't intersectionality is about investigating all of the people that are excluded for one reason or another your gender can also exclude you in the same way when i think about race and gender intersecting it's like a unique experience in itself so it's not that you're suffering from racial discrimination and then gender discrimination separately it like compounds to make this like whole new unique experience and the way i've heard it described before is like if you put copper and tin together you get bronze which is like a completely new compound which is completely different from the previous two ingredients that you put in you don't get tin per and so the experience in itself is something new and unique but not necessarily in a great way what might elena and i as two white women never have experienced right never being the default there's really minor things like a skin colored pen when you're coloring in at school to being in a photo booth and you always come out kind of gray looking just because the lighting is always set for the default which is a white person but then to like more serious life altering things to being in public space and knowing that like if you tweet an opinion you're going to be attacked for both being a woman and being black kind of going a little bit veering off right now you write a column for Galdem about race and love yes tell us about that I have an ex-boyfriend that hates me profusely now but I started writing it because I was with I don't know for like two and a half years or something and we broke up and it was fine but then a few of us went back up to Manchester where we'd studied to hang out and we were in this bar and he was just talking about how where he worked People were always saying racist things and sexist things, but he never really did anything about it. And he went to Moss Side Carnival and people were being racist to him. And I was like, well, they weren't because you're a white man. Like, that's not what racism is. The whole conversation ended with him being like, well, I never really found any of that stuff that interesting. And then I was just kind of like, wow, like I was with someone for two years that doesn't think that race or racism is interesting enough to think about or to try and tackle. That's my whole life. Like I don't really have the luxury of being able to not think it's interesting because it dictates my entire life. He wrote me this huge letter from India where he was finding himself and you can't make it up like 100% like with monks or something I, or was it nuns I don't know but like it was like eat pray love all the stereotypes anything you could imagine he was doing it but yeah he just wrote me this like huge tristes from there just like it always annoyed me that you always looked at everything through the lens of race and gender and I was just like well what other lenses do you want me to look at it yeah, through yeah, exactly. <laughs> I don't really know and then I just put it online 
what I find interesting about, which I hadn't uh, thought about when we were thinking about this episode mm. with race, was race and love. And how for me, as a woman and as a very outspoken intersectional feminist, I can find it sometimes difficult engaging with men and like wanting to be with men because I'm like, inherently, I dislike you (laughs) because inherently you are a misogynist. Like whether you want to agree with it or not, you're a misogynist because that's the way society has unfortunately conditioned you. And to all the guys listening right now saying to themselves, but I'm a nice guy, hashtag not all men. Like you're a misogynist, accept it. The sooner you accept it, the sooner that I can be with you. I can be with you and love you for it. But anyway, and what I find interesting is that I find that annoying and frustrating. But then you have that added identity of men and white people and whiteness. And so what's that like? What's your experience of that? To be honest, it's a fucking nightmare. This is what I realised after all of the nonsense with my ex-boyfriend was that it's already hard enough to find someone who self-identifies as a feminist but then actually lives those principles, like isn't just chat has similar interests to you. Like, it's hard enough finding someone who you just find interesting. So if you've already got that to deal with, that's pretty hard. So even if you found someone who also then is a feminist, then after that part, you've got like all of the race stuff. Then you've got to deal with the people who like fetishise ethnic minority women. And then on top of it, you've got to either be educating people or dealing with microaggressions. And it is just an absolute ball ache. And then you just get really exhausted I'm taking a little break from dating white guys, but it probably won't last very long. It's like 85% of the population. <laughs> so <laughs> There is a real point about emotional labour and having to... And we completely appreciate that as two white women, we've invited you on to talk, <laughs> to talk about race. And on your point, Elena, about men being misogynists, then we also have to accept if all men are misogynists, then as white people, we are inherently privileged and racist, I suppose. I guess my question is, what does being an ally look mm. like? What should the right guys be doing? The white guys should be mindful about some of the things that they might say, go and read up on things. Also, just because you fuck with ethnic minority women like doesn't mean that you're a hero or you're not a racist listen to podcasts like this google stuff but don't expect the other person to have to do it if they don't feel like it and i think that really links to just being an ally in general if i say actually i just don't want the conversation to continue it's too much because for them it's just a debate and like for me it's just my whole life so it's just they don't have the same relationship with the discussion but also in those situations like other people white people have stepped in to then like have the conversation on my behalf it saves me having to put in the work to do that so I've always found that really useful like someone else just coming in and like having the argument for me and then giving people platforms definitely as well and just checking in on people could you talk to us a bit about what structural racism looks like that's quite a broad question but because I think we probably haven't really ever had to think about it personally. Yeah, I think structural racism is difficult because it's so hidden and it's so long term and it's based on like 400 years of like colonial history and government policy and it's really, really hard to communicate. And I always think like an example of what isn't structural racism, which is just like general racism versus structural, is racism just generally would be when I went to my friend's house and I drove my car there and I left it there and then the next day when I got up like the police had been called on my car because an old woman had called the police and said my car was abandoned and put a sign on it and then came out to shout at me when I went to go and move my car like that's it's not a great day but that's like a direct incident of racism 
but structural racism is a lot more insidious rather than as overt as that so if you have a muslim sounding name like the fact that you have to send in three times as many job applications is a result of structural racism because there's like 400 years or so of colonial history there there's more recent like pathologies around like muslims and their behavior and who they are and you're suffering economically because of that and that's based on a complex history and the way institutions are run and the way you're portrayed in the media and they all conflate and intersect and that's affecting your outcomes like in employment or in education but it's so hard to communicate that because it's complex and it's a lot easier for people to understand racism is something that happens because an individual is bad and they commit a crime against another individual because of their race, if that makes sense. People that say that they're colourblind. Oh my God. <laughs> is it a thing? Can you be colourblind? No. Because <laughs> so much of racism is unconscious as well. And so like the way you perceive people is based on like unconscious processes in the brain that you don't even notice. So you physically cannot be colourblind even if you tried. So that's already like strike one, no. But equally, it's just not helpful for anyone. Like, I wish we lived in a society where we don't have to think about race anymore. We don't have to talk about it. Like, it doesn't impact people's lives in every way. But we haven't gotten there yet. And until we have, it's just not helpful. It's like a misrecognition for me and everyone who looks like me and our lives because... I don't get the luxury or the privilege of pretending that race doesn't exist. If someone else does, it's not only just irritating because you're like, that's annoying, something's happening to me and you're pretending it isn't. But it's also really dangerous because we have some serious problems. Like If someone's having to send in three times as many applications, we need to be able to talk about the fact that that is linked to someone's ethnicity. And if you just say, well, I don't see race, you also don't acknowledge that issue. And then we can't even try and solve it if we're pretending it doesn't exist. Like a colourblind approach is only helpful when we reach our idyllic post-racial society, which I hope one day will come. But until it has, being colourblind is really, really unhelpful. I'd say it's kind of destructive and counterproductive. And also it's not even viable because unconsciously you're probably still making loads of assumptions about people based on their race without even realising that you are. Do you think uh, a post-racial society is possible? I don't know. Like, I, right now, I don't feel confident in it. But equally, you have to, without that hope, like, it's just really difficult to continue. So I think there almost needs to be like a slightly delusional sense of optimism just in order to like continue to fight for it as an ideal. And I don't know, like the life I'm living right now is still miles better than my ancestors. So... The leaps we've taken is not enough, but we have made some strides. And I always like to point that out because there's never enough good news about anything. But I, I am sceptical about whether it can be achieved, but I have to hold out the hope that it can. Otherwise, it's hard to continue like working in this space. What does taking steps towards post-racial society look like? So, for example, um, job applications that don't have people's names on them, yeah. so that, that they'll be anonymous. And I guess kind of hand in hand with that is the the idea of like quotas I suppose so thoughts on that I'm a fan of all of those things like name blind those CVs like straight away panels with like at least one person of colour on it or and like definitely like at least one woman if you can all up for quotas but they're definitely like not 
they're politically suicidal still in a way that it isn't for gender. So people can talk about gender quotas and, I mean, men will still go batshit about it. A lot of the turnaround with people understanding that maybe it would be the only way to end gender inequality in the workplace is because people can understand the issue more because everyone has a mother or more or less and a lot of people have sisters or an aunt or a daughter and so when they think about what they want for them they want a society where they have equal opportunities and so then when you come to them and say we need quotas it doesn't sound as jarring but because we haven't gotten to a place with race where well one know that there are inequalities and to understand why they exist people don't understand why we would need quotas and so people just think it would be playing favor to people who don't have the right skills rather than seeing it as hiring people on potential because they haven't been given the same opportunities and they've been held back in ways that like white men haven't and just trying to rectify that imbalance so i think the only way to truly rectify that imbalance would be quotas but it's a hard sell because people don't believe that racism as much as an issue as it is and they think it's just the result of like a few bad individuals that like beat people up in the streets they don't see it as something that's like entrenched in our economic system so it's a pretty hard sell to even get to the quota stage before you even get to the like post-racial society stage. It must be frustrating to look at events like Charlottesville and have people be like, oh my gosh, you'd never realise this was 2017. Oh my God. And it's like literally like every ethnic minority was like, I'm not surprised. Like this is not shocking. The same with like Brexit and hate crime. And people were obviously horrified and shocked that there was all this hate crime post-Brexit and it was seen as totally shocking. But it's just not shocking to ethnic minorities because these issues have existed since like at least the 1950s, well, longer than that, but in a similar fashion since the 1950s. And we've not spoken about it really. We've not dealt with it in a public way. We don't teach colonial history really at all. So people don't even understand that Britain had had an empire and that it was extremely brutal. People are very nostalgic about it. They did a YouGov poll. Everyone loves it, thought it was great. So that isn't, if people don't understand that any of those things have happened, but we do, and then of course it's shocking for them because they've never, they've never had to engage with it before. And so I can see why it's a surprise, but it isn't a surprise for us. It's still very upsetting but the causes of it have been very apparent for a really long time. There's not been a concerted effort to teach people about the past and then try and come up with something new that brings people together that we can all be a part of. And I think until we do that as a country, like we're not going to get anywhere and neither will America. Kind of taking it back a little bit, when did you realise that you were black? So I remember when I still didn't really think about it, because I, my mum always made me very aware that I was black, so there was absolutely no way that I was not going to know about it. I think just she didn't want me to be surprised or unprepared for when the moment would happen. So she just thought, I will continually tell you, but there will be a moment when you realise. It didn't happen for a really long time, because I remember my mum showing me two photographs, one image of me at an event, at an after-school club I went to, and one on a school trip, a school walking trip in the countryside and she asked me to describe what was different about one photo from the other and she said 
And so I was going through saying, in this one, everyone has a backpack. In this one, everyone's in their summer clothes. And the only thing I didn't realise was that everyone in one photo was white, apart from me, and everyone in the other photo was black. And I must have been like 11, maybe, and it, it didn't occur to me that that was... Yeah, one of now that'd be the first thing I would see. Like, there's absolutely no way I could miss that, like, even if I tried. And I think that says a lot about growing up in majority white environments and that for years and years, I was just shielded from the worst, like, the sharper end of racism, really, because I never... I didn't really have to think about it in a huge way because I really, when I was six, basically, I got this random scholarship to this, like, fancy... really, like, fancy private school in the countryside... And so I just went from like my local school to just like all like rich white people, but like really rich. And I was I just living on a council estate in Reading, just being a child. But it did mean that like I didn't I was both acutely aware of race all the time, but then didn't really have to think about it in any serious way. But then I guess when I really realised that I was black was when I went to someone was having an end of year party to celebrate, I don't know, something when I was still at the prep school and we went we had it at someone's house who had like a pool and tennis courts and was like very very rich and my mum had told me just when you're there be careful make sure you're never anywhere on your own and make sure don't go exploring because like if anything happens if anything goes missing they will blame you so I didn't do those things and then when I know something broke or something and the like mum came down and was just like who like did this blah 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 and it was for the first time she didn't like point at me or anything but like it was and it's really weird because you can't describe it but like you just know and I could tell like this is a person that doesn't like me for no reason you can just feel it and like once it's happened you can never unsee it and like it just never ever goes away so I think it would probably either be then or when this kid said that my mum looked like a monkey um who then got detention but I think, and he's probably like a really nice guy now, but what it mostly shows is like the attitudes of the parents, because where do you learn that language from at home? And so it's those kids, I don't, I don't know what he does now, but like there's every chance that he might not hold those views anymore, but his parents definitely do. And I think until once that happens to you, then it never goes away and you can't unsee it and you never forget it. Like I've not thought about any of those things in years, but now you've asked like they all come back but even so like those comparatively like other people have it so much worse it, it could have just been way way worse and like that was probably like dealing with those things was worth all the privileges that I got from being in that environment which still benefit me right now in a myriad of ways like unbelievably unfair ways so I always like to put that in yeah, it's interesting. That, uh, it demonstrates perfectly almost, you know, how you can have privilege in one area, mm. but then also be discriminated and oppressed in other areas. So wrapping up, what what are you up to? How can we support you? How can we platform you? The floor is yours. You know, if we want people to follow you, support your work, how can we do that? Okay, so if you want to help out, definitely anything Galdem does, read it, watch it, and particularly read my dating series woke men only where you can hear about all the white men i've dated and all the future white guys that i've date i will date although i'm taking a break <laughs> and yeah i hear about how it goes which is probably quite badly but i hold out hope for the future but yeah if you want to help me out definitely read woke men only <laughs>
Amazing. Amazing. I kind of want to do a whole series on that. Yeah. <laughs> to be honest, that sounds great. <laughs> Amazing. Thank you so much, Kimberly. That was Kim. She was chatting to us about dating, her experiences as a woman of colour, and a lot more. You should definitely check out Galdem, which writes plenty of fantastic articles from women of colour, and particularly around the British experience of being a woman of colour, which is, I think, something that isn't given enough time, not necessarily just about being a British woman of colour, but just the people of colour or POC experience in Britain. There's a lot of resource and a lot of time dedicated to being a person of colour in the United States of America but not so much in the UK which is why we kind of started this podcast was to try and find those nuances and you know I was sick of researching things and it always coming up with things happening in America. It's like I can't relate to that. Yeah. Let's celebrate intersectional feminists right here in the UK. So we've got a couple of book recommendations for you so you don't rely on the uh, people of colour in your life to justify and explain everything. Our first one would be of course the good Immigrant by Nukesh Shukla with 21 authors talking about being an immigrant in the United Kingdom. And the second one is the amazing Why I'm No Longer Talking to White People About Race by Rennie Edda-Lodge. She is also in The Good Immigrant, so she's doubly fantastic. Not to take anything away from the people in The Good Immigrant, they're also all amazing. But Why I'm No Longer Talking to White People About Race is a fantastic book. And it's literally just been recommended by every single person we've spoken to. So if you're going to do anything this weekend or this week or this month or spend your money on something. Then support women of colour and support writers of colour. Exactly. For myself, I haven't read a book from end to end for the past seven years. And both of these books, Elena and I have both read and they're freaking amazing, cover to cover. I'm quite proud of with us. We're not academic feminists. We haven't studied this. I think sometimes you can get lost in like academic theory. And we know that the important thing to be a good ally or to understand anything isn't necessarily to read lots. It is to do your own research, but it's also to listen. Which reminds us, why don't you tell us what you thought of this podcast? It's our first one of season two. You can get in touch. Let us know what you thought. You can get in touch over Facebook at Kicking the Kyriarchy. You can email us, kickingthekyriarchy at gmail.com. You can find us on Twitter at at KitKariaki. You can visit our website, www.kickingthekariaki.org. We've got forms on there that you can fill out to suggest. Wow, forms sound so boring we have pages on there or ways that you can contact us on the website where you can fill in a form to let us know of any suggestions calling us in on things so maybe we could have done something a little bit better suggest guests and topics we're always looking for new ways to do things or even you know if we could revisit topics let us know get in contact we love hearing from you and if you'd like to be our ultimate faves give us a rating on itunes and leave us a review thanks listeners yeah thank you team it's been great thanks elena Thank you, our guests. Thank you, Sid. Oh. Roll on episode two. Whoop, whoop. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health Right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. 